Elam Chapel is a church that wants to embrace, equip, and engage people as we seek to be disciples who make disciples, because we see this as our way of fulfilling the Great Commission that Jesus has given to us. Yet, as most churches, we struggle with the Great Commission, and I think we know that we need God's help in order to do this. Now, the encouraging news that we're going to explore this morning is that the Holy Spirit is here with us, and he's ready to give us the things that we need as our paraclete, our helper, in order for us to do the job. He's the one that equips us. He's the one who gives us the spiritual gifts that equip us to embrace and engage our world. Now, the past two Sundays, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we've looked at the way the Apostle Paul has discussed some of the gifts that he gives to the church to equip the church. And by way of review, I want to remind you this morning of some of the key points made in chapter 12 so that we can better focus our attention on chapter 13. First, these endowments or these gifts that the apostle speaks of are the special abilities that the Holy Spirit gives us. They're not toys, nor are they trinkets. They are not given to us for our own enjoyment. Neither are they given to us so that we might feel good about ourselves. Rather, they are special abilities that enable us to do things that we would not otherwise be able to do for the benefit of other people. As Paul wrote in verse 7 of that chapter, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. The gifts are given to us that we might help one another in our task of being disciples who make disciples. Now, these spiritual gifts are more like tools than they are talents. They're given to us for service to others in the name of God. They are abilities given to us by God's sovereign choosing that we might use them to serve others in our service to God. Now, another important thing that you need to note in verse 7 that these gifts are not for a few select people. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. It's God's intention that every believer in Christ has a role to play, and therefore the Holy Spirit equips each believer with what they need to fill that role. We, we hear this very clearly in verses 9 to 11 in chapter 12. The same Spirit gives faith to another, and to someone else, the one spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles, and to another, the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. Still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. Every one of us should be gifted by God's Spirit to serve. Now, what is our role in the reception of these gifts? Good question. Paul tells us that we shouldn't merely sit back and passively wait for the Holy Spirit to show up and give us a gift. 
we are invited to actively reach out and embrace the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We read in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. This is not a suggestion. It's actually an imperative. It's a command. The word we translate as earnestly desire has given us the English word zealot. Zealot. Same word. The Greek word originally contained the idea of getting hot and boiling over. That's where you get the idea of a zealot. A zealot is someone who's boiling mad and hot and ready to do something about it, ready to conquer something. We speak of someone who burns with zeal. This is the word Paul used. Like zealots, we should be pursuing the spiritual gifts. Now, a zealot pursues his or her aim with a passion that puts the cause above his or her own preferences or needs or desires. And that's exactly how the Holy Spirit wants us to pursue these gifts. He wants us to be spiritual zealots. But he has more to say. The very last words of chapter 12 are, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. These words serve as an introduction to chapter 13 that we're looking at today. 1 Corinthians 13 is often called the love chapter. It's often used at weddings, uh, but Paul didn't write it for that purpose, I assure you. Chapter 13 sets for us the context in which the spiritual gifts are given and in which they operate. It's also a tool for us to examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is not a little fuzzy chapter. It's a rigid tool of examination. It's there for us to look at our lives and determine how we measure up. In a nutshell, 1 Corinthians 13 shows us how the gifts of the Holy Spirit should operate within the church. Now, with that in mind, let's skip chapter 13 very briefly and look at the beginning of chapter 14, where Paul begins with two more imperatives. Chapter 12 ends with an imperative. Chapter 14 begins with two of them. Chapter 12 ends with the words, earnestly seek the best gifts. It's a command. The first imperative in chapter 14 is to pursue love. Chase it. Pursue it as a hunter would chase an animal so that he can feed his family. Pursue it as a a soldier would pursue a retreating enemy in order to win a battle. Put yourself wholly into the pursuit of love, the Apostle Paul says. Let love be your highest goal. The second imperative or command is to pursue spiritual gifts. He repeats what he ended with in chapter 12, pursue spiritual gifts. Same words as chapter 12, verse 21. You should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy. Now, immediately we understand that the better way Paul mentions is the way of love. And love must govern our pursuit and use of the spiritual gifts. Now, immediately uh, we see Paul making three remarkable, dramatic assertions to the church in Corinth that would have been completely unexpected by his audience. 
And in fact, they would have been absolutely shocking assertions to them. They would have heard them with, with uh, confusion and some animosity. He says, If I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The technical term for speaking in tongues is glossolalia. It describes what we see happening on the day of Pentecost when the disciples were, were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak words that they had never learned, that they didn't know. And people heard them speaking the message about Jesus in their own language and understood what they were saying. Now, this gift of speaking in tongues, or glossolalia, was the most highly favored gift in the Corinthian church. You can't read the first Corinthian letter without realizing that. They really prized that gift. Everybody wanted it. Why? Because they had decided that it was the ability to speak in tongues that really marked out a person as being spiritually. Only the most spiritual persons got it. So if they could speak with tongues, they, they felt like they were in that elite category. This is why Paul introduces it with such shocking words. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Why does he choose those words? There was a particular religious experience in Corinth that was closely connected with the use of gongs and cymbals. And there were two gods, two Greek gods that they worshipped within that, those temples. And as soon as these people heard the words gongs and cymbals, if they spent any time in the city at all, they would think of that pagan temple. One was, a, was the god of wine and the other was kind of an earth goddess. I said that this was dramatic and shocking because basically what Paul says to them is that they speak in tongues but not in love. Their worship is no better than the worship down the street in the pagan temple. He didn't pull any punches, did he? Hit him right between the eyes. But he doesn't stop there. He moves from there to other charismata, spiritual gifts, as he shows him the central importance of love. He says, if I had the gift of prophecy, which he tells them is the gift they should seek in chapter 14, if I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge and I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If one had what he called the greater gift, prophecy, and faith that could move mountains, but was lacking in love, it would just be worthless. Worthless. The Christian would be nothing, at least not in service to others, because that's what the gifts are all about, is service to others. The third assertion moves from gifts and touches on self-sacrifice, even to the point of martyrdom, giving up one's own life for the cause. He said, if I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my own body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained everything. If I gave everything away, even my own life, and didn't love others, I would have gained nothing, he says. 
Now, giving generously to those in need is a form of self-sacrifice, though seldom to the degree of, of an extreme. But let's say that a person might take it to an extreme and sacrifice their own life. There's no love. Paul says nothing has been gained. It's a short yet powerful depiction, these three statements, of the importance of love in our lives as believers. If our own spiritual practices and acts of worship are not done in love, they're essentially worthless. These strong words to the Corinthians also need to be heard by us today. Is love really that important? Well, maybe the answer is in the words of Jesus himself. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Paul's not saying a new thing. He's just basically repeating what Jesus had said. Now, what does God want from us? To use our gifts to help others in love. What would that look like? What does it mean to love? 1 Corinthians 13 is the answer to that question. What does it mean to love? Let's begin by reminding ourselves that love is best seen as a verb. It's not a noun or even an adjective. Otherwise, love becomes something abstract or even a vague feeling. I was in a conference on on marriage counseling about 45 years ago, and the speaker, maybe by way of jest, gave us a definition of love. I'll share it with you. Love is a feeling you feel when you get a feeling that you're going to feel something that you've never felt before. Pretty vague, isn't it? Pretty abstract. That's not love. That's not how it works. Love is, is, is not a feeling. It's not an abstraction. It's an action. Paul uses 15 verbs in this passage to describe love. He shows us through 15 verbs what love is and what it isn't. Because love is visible in our actions. Now, feelings... Uh, may help us to do those things, but just as realistically, often, when we do the things, the feeling of love follows. The action takes priority. Now, the first two actions are positive, showing us what love looks like. Chapter 13, verse 4, love is patient and love is kind. Love is patient. Uh, and The King James Version has a lovely translation that I'm sorry we don't use anymore. Because the King James Version says, love is long-suffering. It's a worthy translation. There there are actually two different Greek words that we translate as patient. Uh, One Greek word refers to our patience with people. The other Greek word applies to our patience with circumstance. This is the one that refers to our patience with people. And sometimes people can tend to be difficult. And sometimes with those people, we need to be on a journey of long-suffering. Patience or long-suffering with people. I recently came across this appropriate quote. In a world where suffering is almost a law of life, actually it probably is a law of life, the power to suffer long be one of life's most needed gifts. could show up there on the screen. Yeah, there we go. In in a world where suffering is almost a law of life, the power to suffer long may be one of life's most needed gifts. Suffering is what? It's having to endure what we very much do not want to endure. 
Anything we don't want to endure but have to endure is suffering. He's saying love doesn't give up on people because they are sometimes difficult to get along with. Love doesn't quit because a relationship is complicated. Secondly, love is kind. This word doesn't mean to be nice. It's an interesting word. Um, It really means to be helpful. It means to be useful. The name of Jesus in Greek is Christos. This word is Krestos. Just one letter different. And it was a name that was frequently given to slaves or servants in a household who had shown themselves to be extremely helpful and useful. They would call that person useful, Christos. Love is useful, the apostle says. But there's in this word also an element of gentleness. It's useful in a gentle servant sort of way. Love is kind by being helpful. Remember Charlie Brown, who often got his kite stuck up in the tree, and, uh, or was it Linus that got his kite? Some one of them got their kite stuck in the tree all the time and had to have help getting it down. So here's the poor bird on the bottom. I don't remember the bird's name. And Snoopy on top of the bird holding up the critter. Just helping. Uh, this is what it means to love, is to be helpful to people, to be kind. These two verbs, First two verbs, patient and kind, describe God's relationship to us. Romans 2, verse 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that this kindness is intended to turn you away from your sin? Now, the next seven verbs are negatives. They show us what love isn't. And we're going to plow through them very quickly. They show us what love doesn't look like. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wrong. First negative, love is not envious or jealous. This is the exact same word we saw in chapter 12, in essence, where we translated it as zeal, earnestly desire. The the word can have, it has this root of burning, of boiling over, And it can have a positive and a negative. When it's positive, it means to have a positive desire, a zeal. When it's negative, it means to be jealous, envious. And it's the context that helps us understand what the person is speaking about. Obviously, we're talking here about jealousy, envy, people who are burning with jealousy. It says love is never envious, never jealous, because another person wants something I don't have. It's easy to be envious of what another person has, especially if you have an apple and they have chocolate ice cream. Easy to be jealous. Number two, love is not boastful. A loving person is not self-centered with a need to continually call attention to himself. Boasting is often trying to look good when down inside you don't feel so good. It's like having your own advertising agency. That's what it means to boast. But the fact is that boasting distorts reality and cuts us off from other people very quickly. Number three, love is not proud. 
This is the, I, I believe this is the only time this word shows up in the New Testament. Maybe one other time. It means literally not to be puffed up, blown up. It comes from the verb that means to blow something up, like you take a balloon and, and, and blow it up. Pride is blowing ourselves up to look better than we are. It pushes us towards arrogance, and arrogant people are almost never seen as loving people, are they? Think about somebody that you would think of as arrogant. Are they loving? Not usually. I think it's significant that five times in this letter, Paul refers to the Corinthians as proud, using this word, arrogant. The fourth word, love is not rude. Now, in classical Greek, this, this word has the mean, meaning of being indecent. Love is not indecent. Love does not act shamefully or disgracefully. Love never asks another person to do things that would bring shame on them or to bring shame on someone else. Love would never permit a person to push another into shame. That's what it means when it says love isn't rude. It doesn't move people to indecency or shameful acts. Number five is is about as out of sync with our culture as you can get. Love is not self-seeking. It's not self-centered. It's not egocentric. It's not wrapped up in itself. Love does not seek its own. It does not believe that finding oneself is the highest good. It's not enamored with self-gain, with self-justification with self-worth. To the contrary, love seeks the good of the neighbor, not oneself. Sixth verb, love is not easily angered. It's not easily provoked. It doesn't have a short fuse. I had had a a friend who's who's gone to be with the Lord, and and he was a saint, Uh, But he did have a short fuse. And one day his wife said to me, you know, my husband is irascible. I had to look it up. Didn't know what she meant. Uh, Here's a definition of irascible from the comic strip. Uh, Dagwood's boss. He's irascible. Easily provoked to anger. Love is not easily provoked to anger. Seventh verb. Love is not resentful. It's a, it's, it's a word from the world of accounting. Love does not keep a record of wrongs done to it. Love doesn't keep a balance sheet. It says, well, you've done ten bad things to me this week and five good things. You lose. Well, actually, you lose. It's not this careful determination to record all wrongs that have suffered from the hands, that want to suffer from the hands of God, We sometimes hold God accountable for the wrong things that have happened to us. Our family, our friends, our neighbors, our country, our government. Some of us are old enough to remember these things, green stamps. I remember my mother collecting them religiously and pasting them in a book so that when she had enough books, she could go exchange those books for some kind of merchandise. Well, sometimes we collect emotional green stamps. We 
collect the wrongs that someone has done to us. And we store them in a little book. And when the book is full, we dump on that person. We explode. And we bring out things that maybe happened years ago. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't keep score that way. Next, we have a pair of descriptors. One is negative, one is positive. Love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices with truth. Many people take pleasure in hearing about the dirt in other people's lives. That's why you find magazines like this on on the counter of every grocery store. So this one is about the guy that uh, created Amazon, and uh, his marriage has fallen apart. I have no idea why it's fallen apart. My business. Not even going to think about it. But people want to know why his marriage fell apart. What did he do? What did he do wrong? People kind of like dragging famous people through the dirt. They like the gossip or the news. But this is not the path that love travels. Love rejoices with the truth. Doesn't rejoice in evil. It rejoices with, alongside of, truth. Love covers sin is another way to you to translate this word of what love does. It covers sin. It doesn't parade it. It helps to keep the focus on what is good and true about a person, not what is wrong or bad. Now then, Paul wraps up with four more statements, and I'm moving quickly now, about love, which speak of the permanence of love. He says, love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful. And love endures in every circumstance or perseveres. Now, it's not easy to catch in our English translations, but this list of 15 verbs begins and ends with the same word in English. He begins with patience. He ends with patience. He starts the list in in patience with people, which we said was long-suffering. He ends the list with patience in circumstances. Love doesn't give up on people when they're difficult. Nor does love give up when the circumstances are hard. There's an enduring quality to patience. The idea of endurance in both words is not that of waiting. We, we often use the word patient. We patiently wait for somebody to show up. Well, often we wait impatiently while we're waiting for them to show up. The word really has more to do with this quality of endurance and courage and strength of hanging in there with people and hanging in there in circumstances. So as we reflect on what God is calling Elam Chapel to do, we can see the importance of love operating in and through our congregation. Love equips us to work together as we put away any kind of rivalry about who's got which role or who has which gift. That really those things are based on our own insecurities. And we celebrate the gifts that God has given to each other. We have joy in the gifts that God has given to the other. And we work together with those gifts to be useful to our world. God's love motivates us to embrace the people with whom we will come into contact 
on Sundays and throughout the week. We need love if we're going to embrace and engage our world. Now, in closing, I'm going to recommend two things to you. First, I'm going to have you take a test. Not right now. I I hope you got this sheet when you came in. If you didn't, uh, get it on your way out at the table back there. There are three columns on this sheet. The first one is basically the 15 verbs with the word love. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, boastful, etc. The second column, I've taken out the word love, and I put in the name God. God is patient, God is kind, God is not jealous, boastful, proud, etc. Third column, there are blanks. Here's where the test happens. You put your own name in there. John is patient. John is kind. John is not jealous. I'm failing the test already, and I just started. We'll all fail the test. That's okay. This is an invitation to what? To repentance, forgiveness, and change. As we come to God and say, God, I'm failing. Forgive me. Help me. Change me. So I ask you to take this home and prayerfully... Look at yourself. Examine yourself. How am I doing in this department of love, this category of love? How can I do better? Lord, show me how. Lord, teach me. Second thing I'm going to invite you to do, I haven't done this for a long time. Maybe I've never done it here, I don't know. I'm going to encourage you to memorize 1 Corinthians 13. If you want to become a loving person, Stick it in your brain. Memorize it. You don't have to memorize the whole chapter. I'll let you off easy. Memorize the first seven verses. That's where the 15 verbs are. Memorize those seven verses. Come back next Sunday. Recite them for me. I'll give you a free cup of coffee. I'll just get it out here at the counter. (laughs) I'll give you a cookie, too, if there's any left. No, I'm, I'm being facetious facetious now, but I'm, it, memorize it and then practice it by saying it to people. Because as you do that, you know, it doesn't have to be to me. Uh, same to Daphne. She'll help you. Um, say, say them to anybody, because it helps embed them in your thoughts, in your mind. Memorize this. We want to become a loving church. Do we not? Yeah, I see some of you saying, yes, we want to be a loving church. So let's look at ourselves. Let's memorize 1 Corinthians 13. Let's ask God to make us this kind of church.